The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Good morning. My name is Paul Delahunt. I serve as an elder here, and it's a joy, a responsibility, a privilege to preach the word of God to you this morning. I am working through a bit of a cold, as I'm sure half of you are or so, and so please bear with me. I'll try not to blubber into the microphone here. And I'm also going to go a little bit longer, probably, than usual. So I'll be watching the clock, but I just wanted to let you know that beforehand. So last week, Pastor Ken, as we wrapped up our little mini-series in Genesis, he held out before us the person of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ. And it was a majestic thing. And this week, this passage flows right out of that as we get back into Luke chapter 9. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? How do you respond to his demands upon your life? We're picking back up in chapter 9, like I said. We're covering actually familiar territory. For those who were with us back in the fall as we embarked on Global Focus, where we think about the, uh, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, Pastor Kenny and Pastor John preached on this text as well. But we wanted to pick it up again as we get back into, into Luke uh, chapter 9, because it's really a pivot in the story of Luke. And I hope you'll see that this morning. So think about what you just heard James read from the passage. Think about the demands Jesus makes. Here's the title of the sermon this morning. What will you say to Jesus? And what will you do in response to his commands? My outline, I've got an introduction that we'll go through in a second, and then two main points. The confession you must make and the summons you must obey. Jesus puts you in the crosshairs in this text. He puts you right in the cross crosshairs. And I hope the sermon feels like that to you here this morning. So as we get into the introduction, which I've just called the pivot in the story of Luke, I want to show you four things. First, I want to show you the pivot. Show you the pivot. So um, in the Gospel of Luke, we see the life of Christ. That's really what all of the Gospels are about, the life of Jesus. And if you think about the various events, we start with the Annunciation and Gabriel's words to Mary. And he says this, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And there's not one word about his death. And then we get to the Nativity and John the Baptist. We get to the baptism of Jesus. And the voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And there's nothing about his death. And then we get to the temptation and the launch of his public ministry in Nazareth. And Jesus announces what he's going to do. And he doesn't say anything about his death. And the people, of course, still try to kill him, but not because of anything he said about his dying. And from then on, we've got the calling of the apostles, healing of the sick, working various miracles, casting out demons, 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but nothing about his death. The closest hints are probably when Simeon speaks to Mary at the presentation of Jesus, and he says, a sword will pierce through your own heart too, Mary. Or maybe when Jesus says, when the bridegroom departs, then will the disciples fast, then will the friends fast. Maybe you could call that something about his death. But now, all of a sudden, in today's text, we get to verse 22, and bam, death. The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must be rejected. The Son of Man must be killed. And I think if you're not familiar with the story of Jesus, which many of us are, maybe everybody in this room, but if you weren't familiar or you didn't know the outcome, I think it would be very surprising to you. You haven't heard anything about it up to this point, at least in Luke. And from here on out, the shadow of the cross, the shadow of Christ's demands upon your life, these main questions, what do you say about Jesus? Are you going to follow him? And what's it going to cost you? These are the questions that we see over and over again in Luke. Second thing I want to do is establish the unity of this text. Most of us, I think, in this room probably have the ESV translation, and the ESV gives us three section headers for these 10 verses. And I think that's a little bit misleading, or at least when I read it, it breaks it up unnecessarily. These 10 verses are really bound together. They have a very focused meaning. And I think that becomes clear. Jesus asks a pointed question. He makes life-altering demands. And it all hinges on verses 21 and 22, when he forecasts his death and resurrection. These events of Jesus in his life are going to put you squarely in the crosshairs. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? And we see more broadly the context in chapter 9. So if you go back to verse 7 of chapter 9, let's read this. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So we've got John, we've got Elijah, we've got the prophets of old. Doesn't that sound familiar from today's passage? It's the same people the disciples say that the crowd say that Jesus is. And then if we look forward to next week's passage in the transfiguration, who shows up with Jesus? Moses, greatest of the prophets of old, and Elijah. And so we should understand these verses to really be set in all of chapter 9, and I would say probably the first half of chapter 10, as covering the same themes, as really being taken together. I think if you spend some time with it, you'll see it. And here at the transfiguration, the, the voice from heaven adds something. This is my beloved son. Remember the baptism? This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. The third thing I want to do by way of introduction is to present Jesus in all of his authority to you. Take a look at verse 24 in chapter 9. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus says the only way to save your life, the only way you're going to gain your life is to lose it. And not just some generic loss of life, but specifically to lose it for him. That's part of the pivot of Luke. Jesus lays claim on your life. Jesus lays claim on your life. You're going to have to reckon with him. Keep going, verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is not comfy Jesus talking to you. This is not pastel Jesus. This is not humble, lowly Jesus. This is Jesus robed in his authority. This is Jesus clothed in his righteousness with a sword coming out of his mouth and a rod in his hand with which he's going to rule the nations. It's that kind of Jesus that you have to deal with. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. And so the fourth thing, to zero in on you, Jesus puts each of you in the crosshairs. Does he not? 
in this passage. My prayer has been that this sermon will convict you of the reality and the weight of Jesus Christ. He is more real than you are. He is more real than I am. And he asks you a burning question. What are you going to say? He makes demands upon your life. What are you going to do? Let's pray. So Lord God, as we now get into the sermon more fully, I pray that you would do just that. I pray that the reality and the weight of Jesus Christ would descend upon us for some in new ways. Show us your son, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so key point number one, the confession you must make. And there are three main points. The question, the confession, and the crowds. Let's start with the question. And really there are two questions that Jesus asks. But we'll deal with the crowds later. And so just take up verse 20 for now. Who do you say that I am? And I just want you to feel the power of this question. Can you imagine anybody else asking it to you? I imagined uh, walking around one of the lakes here in the Twin Cities with a, a buddy or a friend or something. And all of a sudden he starts asking me, who do you say that I am? And I think my reaction would be kind of like, that's weird. Um, this guy's a little narcissistic, maybe. And I think usually it would be. And I think when Jesus asks you that question, it should startle you like that. It should be, what is this guy doing asking me this question? Listen to some of the things Jesus says. We could go on and on about this. Blessed are you when people hate you because of me. The happy life is when people hate you because of me, Jesus says. Or even in our text, you could gain the whole world. And if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have me, he says, it's nothing. It's not worth a thing. Is Jesus narcissistic? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we've seen a lot of his humility. We've seen a lot of his nearness to us so far in Luke. But Jesus is Lord. And not just over the winds and waves. Not just over death and demons. He's Lord over you. He has the right to answer you, to ask you this question. He has the right to ask you. It's as though he is saying to you, did you think I only came to heal the sick? To feed the crowds. Is that the only reason? This question isn't just about his identity, it's about your identity as well. And an example comes to mind. Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins. I know that's what you were expecting. Um, so there's a debate raging among Minnesota Vikings fans and sports media coast to coast. Who is Kirk Cousins? Is he a quarterback that can lead a team to the Super Bowl or not? Now, I'm on uh, Team Kirk. I, I confess, I am. But if he and I were walking around, around one of these lakes and he asked me a question like Jesus does, my answer would have no bearing upon myself. When Jesus asks me this question, it's game on. So much depends on what I'm going to say. Sometimes in a story, something happens that sheds a whole new light on the situation. Something's revealed. And the characters can no longer relate to themselves or to one another in the same way. Everything's changed. So think about Pride and Prejudice and Elizabeth Bennet. And when she discovers the real identity of the individual who has delivered her family from dishonor, and it's that horrible Mr. Darcy, all of her pride, all of her prejudice melt away. And it's a Jane Austen novel, so they get married in the end. And it's a wonderful story. What about in Star Wars when Luke Skywalker discovers who Darth Vader really is? Or in Lord of the Rings when Frodo finds out what that ring, what's really going on with it? This question from Jesus does that kind of thing to you. Who do you say that I am? He strips your soul naked and you are forced to reckon with him. And I want to press further on that identity question because Jesus' identity and mission are bound up with your own identity and mission. Notice, after Peter answers the question, Jesus immediately tells the disciples all about his mission. He's come to die and rise again. The hinge, the pivot for Jesus in his human life 
are these life mission events. And they give him his identity. And you can see it all over the New Testament. And I could quote sort of endless verses. I'll just do one to give an example. So at the very beginning of Romans, Romans 1, it says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the life events of Jesus become his identity, declared to be the Son of God in power. And you know what? The same mission events become the foundation of your identity and of your life mission if you believe in him. Listen to Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Your identity is bound up with Jesus if you believe in him. So that's the question. What about the confession? Well, both the question and the confession are intensely personal. They are intensely personal. But who do you say that I am? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That's personal. And here in Luke 9, Jesus puts you in the crosshairs. If you will confess him, his crucifixion, his resurrection, will become your crucifixion and resurrection. And one day he will confess you to the Father. It's game on. So much depends on your answer. How are you going to respond? Do you feel your life invaded by the claims of King Jesus? Do you feel invaded? Now, a non-answer is not going to work, and neither will a half-answer. What's a non-answer? Well, I think of, of Mark 11. Jesus asks the religious leaders, who is John the Baptist? And they kind of do one of these, well, if we say this thing, then Jesus will say that. And then if we say the other thing, the crowds will hate us. So we don't know, Jesus. We don't know. And that doesn't work. It's not going to work for you with Jesus either. What's a half answer? Well, the example that came to mind as the, the father of school-aged children and as a former school-aged child myself is the answer of a school-aged child during homework. So, Johnny, what's, what's 10 plus 10? Um, 20? You don't want to answer the Son of God like this. Um, you're the Son of God? You don't want to guess. You want to know. You have to know. You want to answer like Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. You want to answer like that. You want that question to evoke something from your soul of delight, conviction, confidence, a, a confession of Jesus Christ. Because you see, your response reveals your allegiance. When that question comes to you and you know, in that, no matter what you say, you know in your heart what the answer is for you. It reveals your allegiance. And I think of Thomas after the resurrection when he said, my Lord, my God. That was Thomas's allegiance. Do the people in your life know how you answer this question? And I just have to, to know. Some of you are so embarrassed about Jesus. How come? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's how it goes in Matthew 16, the parallel passage. Now, the crowd's answers are all variations on a theme. Messengers from God. But this is the Son of God. And so we can think about some other examples. Luke chapter 20 in the parable of the vineyard. The master of the vineyard has some rebel tenants, and so he needs to deal with them. So he sends messenger after messenger, and they kill some, and they beat others, and they send them all away. And finally, the master sends his son. Or think about Hebrews 1. Long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. Think about how John the Baptist answered this question. He got it right. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they go on and ask him, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he says, no. 
And in another passage, he says, the one coming after me, he, his sandals, I am not worthy to untie. You see, John got it right. And this is crucial because you know what? The tables one day will turn on your confession. Here's an important question. Who does Jesus say that you are? Who does Jesus confess you to be? One great and awful day, Jesus will either confess you to his Father or he will deny you to his Father. We see it in our text. It's what Jesus says. I'd be ashamed. Is there anything worse than that? Can you imagine any worse outcome for your life than that? And so you must give an answer. You must deal with Jesus Christ. He certainly intends to deal with you. So the question and the confession, and now the crowds. What do the crowds say about Jesus? The first thing to say is that a near miss is still a miss. A near miss is still a miss. So a couple weeks ago, we marked an anniversary. I don't want to say celebrated, but we did mark an anniversary. On January 17th, 1999, Gary Anderson missed a field goal by about that much. By about that much. He would have sent the Vikings to the Super Bowl. But it didn't happen. He missed it. Listen, the crowds in Jesus' day were close to the truth. Are you as close as the crowds? At least the crowds were amazed at him. At least they felt his claims. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And what about you? Are you holding him at arm's length? Are you wishing maybe he was just a scribe after all? Stop asking all those questions, Jesus. Here is Louise Perry. She's a, a British feminist. She's in her early 30s. And recently she wrote a remarkable essay called We Are Repaganizing. We Are Repaganizing. Here's something she says. I am emotionally and intellectually drawn to Christianity. And like everyone else, I was raised in a culture suffused with fading Christian morality and symbolism. But I don't believe. Not really. Louise Perry finds Christianity attractive. She finds Jesus interesting. But Jesus demands that she confess him as the Son of God. And Jesus didn't ask this question of curious skeptics. He asked it to his closest followers. You know, some of you have been attending church for years, for decades, for your whole life, and you've never answered this question for yourself. Pastor Ken is called Bethlehem a middle-class church. Maybe some of you have heard him say that. I know he said it from up front here. We're not overly rich. We're not overly poor. We're a middle-class church. What kind of Jesus does the middle-class crowd want? I think the middle-class crowd wants a bourgeois Jesus, a bougie Jesus, a sweatpants Jesus, a safe, tame Jesus, certainly not a dangerous Jesus who asks these uncomfortable questions. For some, like I said, the name of Jesus embarrasses you. And what came to mind in particular, came to my heart, was maybe some of you high schoolers. Because, you know, you're here because of your parents, perhaps. I'm reading that hideous strength right now from the space trilogy, C.S. Lewis. The main character's name is Mark. Listen to this. And at the name of Jesus, Mark felt himself so embarrassed that he knew his cheeks were slightly reddening. This was exactly the kind of conversation he could not endure. He was embarrassed by Jesus. Here's a description I recently read about the way the modern crowd lives. This was in a review of something else. To express a serious view is to risk being wrong. To form a serious attachment is to risk being humiliated. Safer to be ironically self-detached, self-deprecating, and cautious about what you want to reveal about yourself. Jesus will have none of that. Who do you say that I am, he asks, totally unironically. He's in dead earnest. And when the incarnate God asks you a question in dead earnest, you have to be dead earnest in response. You're not liking Jesus' Instagram post. You're not giving him a follow on Twitter. He's calling your bluffs. 
and they are called, or they will be. You went all in on your piddly pair of twos. And after the flop, you thought you had a full house. But the river card revealed four of a kind, and you've got nothing. For you non-card players, it means this. <laughs> do you think your high personal net worth, do you think your high net income, do you think your reputation, your sterling character, the fact that you go to church, that you read your Bible and pray every day, are you going to trade that for a real confession of Jesus Christ? Jesus asks you a question, and a near miss is still a miss. The Son of Man did not come to be applied to our lives. That's a quote from theologian Ephraim Radner. The Son of Man did not come to be applied to our lives, as too many preachers pretend. We are called to be applied to him. Our times shimmer with the gleaming ripples that spread out from the fullness of his time. We'd have to unpack that a little bit more, but I think it works for this text today, and you can feel it. In other words, don't make Jesus your life hack. Don't make Jesus your life hack. That's the response of the crowds. But you can't keep your life the main thing and then jerry-rig Jesus in. You can't paste him into your life. That's not what he demands. Pastor Tim Keller, who uh, uh, recently went to be with the Lord, has really blessed my life. He preached a sermon called Meeting the Real Jesus. You can find it on YouTube or elsewhere. Meeting the Real Jesus. Wonderful sermon. I'll paraphrase basically what he says at one point. If Jesus is who he says he is, the Lord of heaven, the one to whom the stars are as so many pieces of lint, you can't invite that person into your life and ask him to be your secretary. You can't put Jesus on the payroll. The Son of Man did not come to be applied to your life in that way. And there are so many self-centered crowd responses. We just call them grifter responses to Jesus. So Tim Keller talked about a secretary, but what about a shrink? What about a guru or a genie, a mascot, or a money order, like a blank check? Maybe just focus on two of those. What about a shrink? What do I mean by that? Well, here's one response to Jesus. I'd like to become a Christian, but only if Jesus resolves my emotional hurts. As if Jesus exists to help you with your life. Oh, Jesus came to save you. But he demands worshipers, not clients. You know what? I think a lot of the Christian music on Christian radio basically is Jesus as your shrink. I wouldn't say that overly strongly. That's just the feeling I get sometimes when I listen. What about Jesus as a genie? I'd like to become a Christian, but only if Jesus will give me what I want out of life. As if the Son of God exists to deliver the goods for you. You know, if you respond like that, then you're responding like Megan Rapino. You know Megan Rapino? She's been the face of U.S. women's soccer for the last several years, a remarkable player. And she recently played her last match. And just a couple minutes in, she tore her Achilles and she was done. Let me grab a drink of water here. She was done. And in her uh, profanity-laced <laughs> uh, post-game interview, which I'll change a little bit here, she said this. She said, I'm not a religious person or anything. And if there was a God, like, this is proof that there isn't. And this is messed up. It's just messed up. Six minutes in, and I eat my Achilles. You see, God's a genie to her. And some of you are shocked, and you're like, how could she say that? And yeah, how could she say that? How, how could we say that? That's why it's in the sermon. But you're Megan Rapino. I'm Megan Rapino. How often do things happen in our life and our response is just basically, where was God in that? Jesus isn't your genie. Don't paste Jesus onto your self-centered life. Don't make Jesus your life hack. You must make a confession. 
The question, who is Jesus, brings everything to a head. You're in the crosshairs. Don't answer like the crowds. Don't bluff. Don't play games. Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? What are you going to say? Point number two, the summons you must obey. And just a couple introductory comments. One thing you'll notice as you look at the passage is that Jesus' question is not just answered by words, but also by actions. By actions. And I know there's a subset of you who are thinking, how do I reconcile that with justification? Justification by faith. That's a good question and would need to be taken up separately than what we can do with the time today. But I would just encourage you, be careful of talking at Jesus. Be careful of telling Jesus what he must say. Make sure you're listening to Jesus. Be startled, be gripped, be convicted by this passage. Be like Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is a man, in my opinion, not far from the kingdom of God. And what an amazing thing that would be. He talks a lot about Jesus, and over the last couple years, especially so. In one interview, he was talking about Jesus Christ. He got very emotional, is what he said. The problem is that I probably believe, but I'm amazed at my own belief, and I don't understand it. I still don't know what to make of it, in part because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. You see, he gets it. If you accept Jesus as he claims he is, it totally changes your life. He makes radical demands upon your life. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Jesus knows if your lips say one thing and your heart or your life are far from him. He knows. When you stand before God, you cannot say, but I taught theology at a seminary. I prayed so many times. You can't say those kinds of things. Don't say one thing with your mouth while your heart or your life are in another place. Don't do that. Do you really think you're going to get that past King Jesus? Do you really think so? Because he doesn't. He doesn't. You do not want Jesus to be ashamed of you at the judgment. And so listen to his summons. Tremble at his summons. Three points for the summons you must obey. Follow me, we'll take that one first, and then deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To get where Jesus is, to get where he invites you to come, it's a narrow door. There's room for you, but only bearing a cross. And Jesus brooks no excuses. He burns through them all. You know, we like qualifiers. We hear Jesus' commands and we say, oh, but, you know, the pastor I grew up with was spiritually abusive. Or, I mean, insert whatever you want. Jesus just burns through all of that. People will always have somebody else to blame. And Jesus isn't going to have any of it. At the end of chapter 9 here, someone says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. (laughs) Jesus just says stuff that only Jesus can say. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You follow me. So watch out for your excuses. It will do you no good. Jesus demands, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. But there's good news. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus will call your bluffs, and not just in a bad way or a hard way, but a good way. Listen to Hebrews 4. Since therefore it remains for some to enter God's rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Some of you have hard hearts, but this is an invitation today to lay that down. Follow Jesus. Embrace Jesus. He can save you from your sins. He can give you freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set me free. What a relief to be told, follow me. What a relief. Do you remember uh, Pastor Kenny's example from a few weeks ago when we were in Genesis 1? The box of nothing? 
that ring a bell? He was quoting David Brooks in the New York Times article. David Brooks was saying, look, we don't give our college graduates anything to stand on anymore. We just give them a whole box of nothing. You can be whoever you want to be. Well, great, but that's not calling you to anything. Jesus doesn't give you a box of nothing. Jesus says, follow me. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. How does it end? Isn't it good news that you don't have to build your life on the sand? That when the storms come, it's not going to wash away? It can be on the rock. It's going to last if you're in Christ. It is so good that you can follow Jesus. It's not freedom to have to forge your own destiny. Listen to the Fleet Foxes. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. I think that's the heart cry of a generation. Compare it to this hymn. Holy Bible, book divine, precious treasure, thou art mine. Mine to teach me whence I came, mine to tell me what I am. Follow me, Jesus says. Think about this song. Jesus, king of the highest heaven, learning to take his first steps that he might bring us life. Like us, knowing our smiles and sorrows, he showed the way to follow a way that is true and right. Jesus, take away every darkness, steady my simple footsteps, that I might in your goodness live as a child of God. Oh, that's just music to my soul. Follow Jesus. But you're going to have to deny yourself. What does that mean? What's it going to mean to deny yourself? Well, denial is the opposite of confession. We already saw that with John the Baptist. Remember, he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ, he said. So denying yourself is the opposite of confessing yourself, of making your life the main thing. Denying yourself is part of confessing Jesus as Lord. Have you heard of a replica? With a K, replica? Replica is a chatbot program. It's artificial intelligence simulating friendship, simulating a relationship. Here's one reviewer's comment. Replica is like a best friend who doesn't make any demands of you and in whom you don't have to expend any of the emotional energy a human relationship usually requires. I'll tell you what, Jesus is not like replica at all. That's not Jesus at all. If that's your idea of Jesus, then you're worshiping some sort of shrink Jesus and you have to repent. You know what? <laughs> We all worship Jesus this way sometimes. I confess we do. But you're called in this message, on this Sunday morning, you are called to repent of that idolatry and encounter the real thing, the real Jesus, the Holy One of Israel. What must you deny? Two things, particularly your flesh and your own interests. And these are both huge categories, so we'll just basically visit them and move on. Deny the flesh. When you are tempted to sin, Jesus stands before you, blocking the way, as it were. Mental image of Balaam on the donkey and the angel, if you're familiar. And he's robed in all of his authority and majesty, and you, in your flesh, say, step aside, Jesus. Step aside. I'm going there. You need to get out the way. That's the voice of the flesh. That's what you have to deny. You must be willing to look into your soul and see what's really there. You have to hold up this word of God and let it shine a light on your heart. You have to be honest with what you see. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might uh, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. That's what denying the flesh looks like. 
How about denying your own interests? Such a huge category. I'll just say this. I think it means laying your life down for someone else. Prioritizing them. And don't we have a wonderful example from the text today? In the Lord Jesus himself. Did you notice that in verse 18? Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Was Jesus alone or were the disciples with him? When you're praying alone, who happens to be with you? If you're a mature believer, I would just encourage you, find somebody to be with you when you're praying alone. Show them what it looks like to pursue the Lord. Think of the benefits that you can give to them. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And we'll move on to that next. Take up your cross daily. Look at it in three parts and then move into some specific application. Taking up your cross involves take it up. We have to look at it's your cross, and we have to look at it daily. What does Jesus mean daily? So first, take it up. In Luke 14, 27, Jesus says, whoever, again, things that only Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Listen, if you don't take up your cross, nobody else can bear it for you. Nobody else can take it up. If you're not bearing it, nobody's bearing it. Not the cross Jesus gives to you. Galadriel says to Frodo, this task was appointed to you, Frodo of the Shire. If you do not find a way, no one will. Jesus gives you a cross and he says, take it up. He comes to you and he says that. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus confronts our idols. Follow me, he says. Don't follow me so your material wealth will be preserved. Don't follow me because it's a therapy for your emotional health. No. Following me will mean your crucifixion. If your goal is to save your life, if your goal is to hoard your life, then you're just going to co-opt Jesus into whatever scheme you have going on. But instead, Jesus says, it is in the pouring out of your life to him that you will find life. It's your cross. It's your cross. Several key things to see. One, take up the cross Jesus is giving you not the cross that you fashioned for yourself. You are not in a position to baptize all of your life problems and just be like, well, that's my cross to bear. Jesus doesn't give you that luxury or privilege. No, it's the cross that he gives you. And the cross he calls you to involves self-denial, taking up your cross, confessing him, centering your life on him, and so on. Some more critical truths about this. Your cross, the true north of it, always has to be oriented to Jesus Christ. It can't be oriented to someone else. It can't be oriented to something else. You can't make believe Christianity and, you know, baptize it with Jesus, like I said. It has to be oriented to him. And another principle follows. Jesus is the example for how you are to bear your cross. How you bear it is a crucial element here. Listen, if you're going around moaning about your cross to everyone that you meet, Jesus would say, stop doing that. (laughs) Don't moan about the cross I give you. He would say, examine your heart. There's probably something off. Another thing that I think we normally do is that we compare our crosses with the crosses of other people. We compare our burdens for Christ with the burdens others might bear. And again, I think Jesus would say, don't do that. Remember the Apostle Peter? He's the one who provides us this wonderful answer here. And at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, he's about to go up, and he tells Peter, Peter, you will be crucified just like me. And Peter looks over his shoulder to find the Apostle John standing there and he says, but how about this guy? Jesus only gives you your cross. Jesus only tells you your story. Don't worry too much about what other people must bear. Don't try to bear the crosses of other people. The Bible calls us to bear one another's burdens but it also says that we'll each have to bear our own load. It's easy to get lost in other people's ministry for Jesus, other people's cross-bearing for Jesus, so much so that you sort of use it as a way to avoid your own. Be careful. Your job is to figure out what cross God has given you to bear for Christ as you follow him on the Calvary road, and then to bear it. And then daily. Take up your cross daily. 
Oh, I can see so many in my mind's eye, people I know either up close or from afar, who seem to be walking with Jesus. But they seem to leave off taking up their cross daily. And now they're ensnared in their sins. And I don't say that with judgment. I say it like Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Of them will the Son of Man be ashamed with minds set on earthly things. So I would just exhort you, brothers and sisters, take up your cross daily so that you don't end up like that. Another thing about daily, again, how you do it, do you remember how Jesus sang a hymn as they went to the garden? As he, on his way to Calvary, he was singing. We should sing as well. Are you singing as you bear your cross? As you take up your cross daily, sow a garden of gratefulness. Sow a garden of gratefulness. And I think the promise of Jesus is that you will reap a harvest of happiness. Sow a garden of gratefulness. Reap the harvest of happiness. And so now, uh, some specific summons. And then I want us to see Jesus. Specific summons. So especially to men. Take up your cross daily, men. Every day. Your shoulders were made to bear a load for Jesus. To carry a cross for Jesus. So pick it up. Haul it. Middle-aged men, are you checking out of leading your wives, your families? Take up your cross. Men should not be moping around, bemoaning our burdens, and complaining about the very things God has given us to bear. Fathers, what is the morale like in your home? What's the temperature there? What cross might be lying there waiting for you, begging for you to pick it up each day? Deny yourself so that you may have capacity to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Single men, how are you spending your time? Are you denying yourself and taking up your cross daily? And how about the women? I'm going to be bold here. Wives, are you taking up the cross of being subject, that's the biblical word, of being subject to your husband's? And again, all sorts of qualifiers. I can hear them in my own heart. <laughs> the biblical commands are notably shorn of them. Mothers, don't moan and complain about the burden that you are so privileged to carry. It's not becoming. It's not beautiful. Take up your cross daily. Follow Jesus. Sow your garden in gratefulness. Reap your harvest of happiness. Single women, when an ungodly man comes knocking, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Christ. We talked about youth before. I'll say it again. I think some of you might be coming here just because you have a godly mom and a godly dad, and you're just thinking, oh, this is so boring. I can't wait to be out of here, living life on my own. I can do my own thing. I would just plead with you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't you know the story of Esau? He threw away his birthright for one stinking meal. Don't trade away your heritage of Jesus Christ for a four-piece chicken McNugget. Don't do that. Parents, some of you are making difficult choices all across the board as it relates to the schooling of your children. Some of you are spending quite a bit of money to send your child to, or children to, uh, private school, Christian school, because you want them to have a Christian education. Are you moaning about the finances? Are you moaning about something there? Some of you wish you could do that, but you don't have the finances, or you don't have the time, or whatever. And so Jesus has given you a different cross to bear as it relates to your children. Are you grumbling and complaining, or have you taken up your cross and sown a garden in gratefulness? Some of you have chosen to homeschool, and so you've invested countless hours. I was homeschooled. I I thank my parents. Countless hours in the schooling of your children that some other parents don't have to do. Are you getting tired? Look to Jesus and hope. And on and on we could go. Those later in life, are you leaning into the tape, bearing that cross? 
how are we going to bear these crosses? How are we going to do it? I mean, it's weighty for me to preach this. It's got to be weighty to hear it as well. Be hearing Jesus and his summons. We have to see Christ. We have to see him crucified for us. I said earlier it is so good to be called to follow Jesus. But a cross is a bloody thing. What are you going to do with yourself? How are you possibly going to bear your load to take up your cross? Don't you want to be different? Don't you want to be someone who actually bears it? Who makes it? Don't you want to grow? Don't you want to be changed? Don't you want your heart to be wrung of all that slop water that it sits in day after day that's going to have to be wrung out if you're going to do what Jesus says? Don't you want that? (laughs) Don't you want to have godliness like that? Don't you want to be reborn and grow up in every way into him who is the head? You need Jesus Christ. You need your identity. You need your life mission to be bound up with his. There can be no resurrection without a a crucifixion first. But if there is a crucifixion, resurrection lies on the other side. As that one famous sermon says, Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming for you. If the seed dies, it bears much fruit. That's the promise of Christ. I said earlier that you aren't called to bear other people's crosses. And I left out the most important other person, Jesus. You're not called to bear Jesus' cross and praise God. Boast in his cross, bear reproach for his cross, but don't take it up. Don't steal it from him. Your cross is not a cross of atonement. Your cross can't pay for your sins. Your cross can't bring forgiveness or reconciliation. It's not meant to. Your cross is a cross of sacrificial worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1. His cross is a cross of sacrificial redemption for you, for you, and for me. Only Jesus can bear his cross, and you need him to do that for you. So, as you take up your cross each day, remember that. And remember that he began to teach them, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. What are you going to say to Jesus' question? How are you going to respond? What will you do in response to his summons? Let's pray and ask for grace. So Lord God, we need your help. It's not easy to deny ourselves. It's not easy to take up our cross. It's not easy to follow you. Our flesh is in the way. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for being our Savior. I pray now that you would come meet us in communion as we reflect on your cross. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.